Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome again to Kishwaukee Bible Church. My name's Jesse. I'm the pastor here. A, a warm welcome, especially if you're visiting us uh, this morning. You're, uh, you're joining us uh, in the midst of a series that we've been calling The Gospel According to Jonah. And it's a series in which we've been using this little book of the Bible as a way to get to know God's big book, and, and particularly to grow in our abilities as readers of that book. Because like it or not, the Bible is a book. God's given us a book. And, and if we're going to get to know God and get to know God's Son, we've got to get to know God's book. And to do that, we've been looking at these principles of how to be better readers. And, and so far, we've looked at six uh, the first was called Stop and Listen, that to understand a, a, a book of the Bible, the first thing is to let that book speak for itself. Then we looked at a principle called, called Staying on the Line, that we're called to stay on the line of God's Word without, without going over it and without going under it, without saying more than it says, without saying less than it says. Our third was traveling instructions, that, that before we're going to understand what a, what a passage means for us today, we've got to first go back and understand what it meant for those it was first written to. Fourth, we looked at a, a principle called asking good questions, that good questions unlock for us what's being said in a text and then what's being said through a text. Fifth was understanding genre, that to understand what's being said, we're expected to be sensitive to how it's being said. And then we looked at last uh, week uh, a principle called seeing structure, that whether it's a passage or a book as a whole, authors put these things together in particular ways to make particular points about particular topics, and that the structure establishes the point and then drives you toward a particular response. Well, today we're going to come to our seventh principle called text and framework. But, but where every other principle so far has been about getting us into God's Word, getting us under God's Word, have, have, we have this, this last principle here we have is to finally talk about uh, we have to talk about our tendency to want to place ourselves over God's Word. That's what this is all about today, text and framework, which is a tendency we're going to see that this guy named Jonah struggled with himself. So turn with me, if you would, to the end of chapter 3. We're going to pick up in chapter 3, verse 10, and I'm going to begin by reading from, from Jonah 3.10 through to Chapter 4, verse 4. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. You can turn there again to Jonah 3, verse 10. He's just showed up. If you haven't been here for the story, he's just showed up at, in Nineveh, this, this city of his enemies. He just showed up, told them that their time was ticking down. But because they turned from their evil ways, God turned from the disaster he intended to bring upon them. Follow along with me as I read. This is God's word. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said 
he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer for us today is that we would know what it means to be absolutely abandoned to your word. Absolutely abandoned to your work in this world. And absolutely abandoned to the wonders of your will, to the wonders of your ways, that in no way would we get in the way of the accomplishment of your ways. And it's in the name of the true and living way that I pray, Jesus Christ. Amen. Prejudice runs deep, doesn't it? Prejudice runs deep deep. And you can think of the news headlines that are, are, are racking our country, or you can think of Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennett. Elizabeth, if you know the story, was one of the five daughters, none of which were eligible to, to inherit her, her father's estate. So it put Elizabeth and her sisters in the precarious position of banking on that, that truth universally acknowledged that a man, a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And at all costs, they were going to be that wife except for Elizabeth, who finds herself always passing judgment on first impressions. Which is what the story is all about. The, the collision of, on the one hand, Mr. Darcy's pride, and on the other, Elizabeth's prejudice. Soon after the story opens, Elizabeth and her sisters are invited to a ball where one falls for, for Mr. Darcy's friend, and then, and then this friend presses Darcy to dance with Elizabeth. But when he does, his, his pride, Darcy's pride, gets in the way, and her prejudice begins to rise. Pride and prejudice that each knows or thinks they know or, or feels they know exactly where the other is coming from, exactly who that makes them to be, and exactly what that means for the future, which for these two it means that there is no future between them. Until one day, pride and prejudice finally come crashing down. But what wound? What, what aches and agonies, what pain is caused by pride and prejudice? And oh, what it takes to finally, to finally turn the tide. 
to stop the swell. Because the rivers of pride, the, the waters of prejudice run deep, don't they? Well, what we're going to see in our passage today and in this principle that we're going we're to be looking at is that that's just as true and, and all the more detrimental when it comes to our relationship with God and our understanding of God's Word. That, that when we're meant to live under God and under God's Word, we nonetheless have a bent towards placing ourselves over God's Word. And therefore over God. And before looking at Jonah's bent, I want to start by considering uh, the one we all share by, by looking at this principle called text and framework. So if you have your bulletin, you can take out that, that, insert, uh, that insert, and we're just going to walk through this for a few minutes, beginning with what we mean by these two terms, text and framework. And the first is pretty straightforward. The, the text is simply whatever passage of the Bible we might be considering at some moment. So, so for us today, we're considering this, this passage from Jonah 3.10 through to, to 4.4. 4. But for you in your devotions, it might be a psalm you're looking at. It might be a, a chapter from 2 Timothy. It might be back in Genesis. The text is whatever, whatever passage of the Bible we might be considering at some point. It's what we come to. Our framework is what we come with. It's the way we understand, not just the Bible, but the world around us. And it's important to know that it affects how we read the Bible, for good or for ill. But while it affects how we read the Bible, our framework should never rule how we read the Bible. And that's the heart of this principle, that we must allow the, the Bible to, to rule our frameworks rather than allow our frameworks to rule our understanding of the Bible. What often happens, though, is that, is that we crown our frameworks as king. And, and as Christians, we're in, we're in some ways more guilty of this than anyone else because our assumption is that we have the right framework. So we crown our, our framework as king, where in reality our framework is always at some level flawed. At some level flawed because we're not God. Last time I checked. We don't know everything there is to know. We can't connect the dots like we assume we can. And so our framework is always at some level flawed because we're not God. Yet, whether consciously or subconsciously, we're, we're at risk of forcing God's text into submission to our flawed framework. When what should happen is for us to submit our frameworks always and forever to God's word. To constantly be bringing back the way we see the world, setting that before the Bible and asking God and expecting God to help us see it better. And to do that, we really have to understand this thing called framework. So, so second, let's ask this question, what shapes our frameworks? And again, a framework is how a person understands the world in which they live, how they put the pieces together to make sense of this world in which they live. And everyone has a framework. 
That is both how they make sense of life, and then second, that is shaped by their life, by their upbringing, culture, by their education and experience, and by the, the time in history in which they live. We have a lot of our framework shaped by just the news headlines that are running across the screen each week that was very different from those of different times. So it's what others have called our worldview. And we, we constantly encounter new information then that, that we got to either make a decision about, that we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna either accept it, allow it to reshape how we see the world, or ignore or, or just even outright reject it. It's this thing that each of us has that we come to the text with. We can ask then, how do our framework shape our reading of the text? Because this is the critical juncture that we're trying to understand. The relationship between, between how we see the world and then how we read God's text. Between our frameworks and God's word. And simply put, our frameworks affect how we read everything. They affect how we see God. How we see us and our sin how we then see our need for a Savior, and everything. They affect everything. There is no point in which you can get outside your head and not look through your own two eyes or hear through your own two ears. And that's okay. It's just a given of us not being the infinite, almighty, all-knowing creator. But it's something you have to be aware of because sometimes we think we're the creator. We think we know better than we do. And our tendency, especially if we've grown up in the faith or, or even been around for a while, is going to be to assume that we know what, whatever text we come to, that we know what it means before we even get around to reading it. And some of us have seen this a little even in our trek through Jonah, haven't we? I have. For some of us, the, that we assumed from the very beginning that this was just a story about a fish. Been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, don't need it, right? What does it have to do with me? It's just a story about a fish. So we tune out as soon as we start reading. Other, others of us, they get so hung up on the question of the the historicity of it, the historical possibility of it, that then they forget, they lose sight of all the theological significance. Because it really doesn't matter if there's a fish in the sea right now that could swallow a person. The point of the story is that at one point, God preserved a fish somewhere that did swallow this guy and then made the point that you can't get away from the God who has something to do with you. It doesn't matter if it happens again. That's not the point of the story. No need to discuss whether it's a, a whale shark or an oversized trout. It doesn't matter. And then for some of us, it was our bias when we, we came to Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. may not sound like it, but this was my struggle. Because I grew up very comfortable with the that this was a turning point for Jonah. This was his coming back to where he was supposed to be. And most people, if you, you go and look around our evangelical circles, when they dig into this, they don't really dig very deep. 
They just assume that that's what it says because that's what we've been told it says all of our lives. But when you don't assume and you come to the text with fresh eyes asking, what is God saying through this? How do the details fit together? Is this really saying what I think it's saying? All of a sudden it says something very different. Let's be clear. The problem with our frameworks is not, again, that we have them, but that they can wrongly influence how we hear God's word. For us, how we read the Bible. For Jonah, what he did when God spoke. They can actually stop us from reading the Bible, even if we're still going through the motions of reading the Bible. Especially when we're either unaware of our frameworks ruling how we read, or maybe worse, we're actually unwilling to submit our frameworks to the text we supposedly hold so dear. Because what's supposed to happen is that the text is supposed to shape our frameworks. That's what, that's what it's meant to do. That's why we've been given it. That's why God bothered to speak in the first place or, or even have it recorded afterwards. Because this is supposed to challenge the way we see the world. And there's no depth to that that we finally reach when we can finally set God's word aside and say, I got it. I got it. It's supposed to take us to task because we are not the God we're supposed to serve. And that, this is both necessary and sufficient for living rightly before God. That in order to understand God's word rightly and then to live rightly before him, we must submit our frameworks to God the text. Which again is something this guy named Jonah, even this late in the game, still seems to have a hard time swallowing. So turn with me to this text, beginning in chapter 3, verse 10. And I want to just take a moment to ask why. What was the hang-up for Jonah when it came to submitting himself to the Word of God? Because if you remember, when God spoke, Jonah couldn't swallow it. If you remember, this is, this is where we began way back in chapter 1, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But that Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And even way back when, at the beginning of this series, we asked this question, why, and, and said in answer that on, on one level, at least, it was actually quite understandable. Do you remember this? That this would be like God telling you to get your, your Bible and to get your bullhorn and to go buy your ticket to Iraq, to go into the market of a, of a city like Mosul. And to call that nation to repentance for the Islamic fundamentalism that has now taken the lives of countless Christians. I'd run too. I wouldn't be really excited about that journey. In some sense, we already looked at this and 
And it's even more pertinent for the, it's that city of Mosul that was even in, in the news this morning. That modern city of Mosul is actually, in fact, ancient Nineveh. And so you would be asked to go in and proclaim God's, God's mercies and the potential of God's wrath to the great-great-grandfathers of ISIS. So it's understandable to run in the other direction. That rather than rising to go to Nineveh, Jonah laced up his Nikes and ran in the opposite direction. But it's only now in chapter 4 that we find out Jonah fled, not because he was afraid of the Ninevites, like you might have thought, but that he was afraid of God and of what God might do if the Ninevites turned from their evil way. We're told at the end of chapter 3 that the Ninevites did just that. They, they turned from their evil ways. And that God then turned from the evil or the disaster, same word, that, that he had threatened them with. But, but listen to what it says about Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Literally, this is what it says. It says, It was evil to Jonah with a great evil. They turned from their evil ways. God turns from the evil he had in store for them, and it was evil to Jonah. Not just, not just a turn away from evil, a turn toward evil. That in doing so, God had overstepped the boundary of godliness. That he had somehow violated his own nature and God had forced Jonah into the position, like it or not, of having to judge God because God would not judge his enemies. Dangerous, though, when we become the judge of God. I mean, look at our society. Dangerous when we end up behind the judge's seat. Because where does it stop? Where does the buck stop? Who gets to decide? Who gets to say what's what? You end up with a society not unlike our own. Or if you have a chance to travel in Britain or the continent across the sea, a society that's gone even further than our own. But listen to what it says about, about Jonah again. For Jonah, the impeachment begins. So Jonah prays for the, the second time in this book, same word. But where before he only hinted at what was in his hand, using all the right words, even though it was all the wrong context, hoping God would, would catch his drift and give up this idea of this silly Ninevite venture, where before it was all smoke and mirrors, now Jonah puts his cards on the table. And he prays, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. 
For I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. That I couldn't stand it, that it wasn't right, that it was evil for you to turn from the evil they deserved. And I knew you would do it. It's almost like Jonah is bending God over his knee. Do you remember this as a child? Some of you are children. You remember getting bent over your parents' knee? And they start rattling off all the reasons why you're bent over their knee. All you did wrong to end you in that position. All that you did to deserve what's coming to you. The the comeuppance that they're about to dish out on your behalf. This is what Jonah is doing. Now, now God, I tried to give you your chance. I, I even ran away thinking you would change your mind. I prayed and told you that those who turn to idols turn away from steadfast love. I even said I would turn back to your temple to do what none of the people were doing in at least the northern side of the kingdom. Maybe then you wouldn't need to think of these Ninevites. They wouldn't need to come and judge us. Because at least I would do what you wanted. I said I would. Sacrifice to you like you asked in the place you asked. Maybe then. Maybe then. And in the end, I went. You were so pressed to get this message across. I went. And I preached. Prophesied on your behalf. Forty days and then it's over. But even that you didn't listen to. You didn't listen to my words. 40 days, it's over. And what's more, you still didn't get the message and still didn't keep your end of the bargain. Bending him over his knee. But it's actually far worse. It's actually far worse because Jonah's not only judging God for what God's done or not done. God's judging, Jonah's judging God for what God's said about himself. Taking God's own description of God's own character and throwing it back in God's own face. You see, this, this description of God isn't something Jonah came up with but something God had said of himself. And some of you know where it comes from, right? Way back in Exodus 34. After a man named Moses had asked to see God's glory, and God consented and put him in the cleft of a rock and passed by him so that he could see the the train of his glory. Because you couldn't see God's face, that was certain death but saw the train of his glory, and yet not being able to see, to bear to see God's glory, while God passed by, he did declare his glory for Moses to hear. And what did he say? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. It became a creed for the Israelites. It's all over the Old Testament. 
full of mercy and grace, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But Jonah wouldn't have it. Why? Because God's word didn't fit within his framework. Not his description of himself or back in chapter one when he told Jonah to go. And having proved himself a functional liberal of doing less than God's word demanded of him, go to Nineveh, off he goes to Tarshish. It's here that we find out it's because Jonah was a theological legalist. Interesting, right? Remember the staying on the line to go above the line. The legalism of our day trying to demand more than God demands, then to go below the line, to say less than God says, to demand less than God demands, the liberalism of our day. And yet here it is in a single person, a functional liberal because he's a theological legalist. That God claimed to be gracious, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, while Jonah was quick to say, yes, but only for those who've earned it. You see, theological legalists always make for the most functional liberals. Those who think that they're in an I scratch your back, you scratch mine type of relationship with God are always the ones that demand more from others than even God does and who never do what God demands of themselves. Because they think that they're somehow above the law. Somehow above even God. That they're the ones who, who are going to hold God to some standard outside himself. And that, that because they've got the leverage point, they obviously can't be expected to be accountable to God like everyone else. Because then who would hold God accountable? From what Jonah's saying here, it's pretty astounding, though, how deep this prejudice runs. You see, back in Exodus 34, when God revealed his character to this guy named Moses, this wasn't just them sitting around one day, skipping rocks and twiddling their thumbs, and God said, you want to see something cool? Come over here. Hide in this rock. I'll show you something. This wasn't just them sitting around. He showed Moses his glory and declared to Moses his character because the people Moses had just led out of slavery and led to that mountain, had the first time Moses went up that mountain, walked away. Had created for themselves a calf of gold and declared to each other, here, behold, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. And God was angry. God was angry until Moses stood in the gap. And Moses went up that mountain again, and God showed him who he was and why he would be faithful to his people, angry though he was, because he was full of mercy and grace, abounding in steadfast love. 
And how long was Moses on the mountain for? How long? For 40 days. So that it seems that this is the scene that's playing in the back of Jonah's mind. When Jonah walked into Nineveh and declared 40 days and then you'll be overthrown. He was actually inviting God to make right the mockery of his grace shown even to Israel so long ago. That, that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah knew about idols. He served in a country that had two of them bounding in the country on either side. That those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That he was inviting God to do to Nineveh what God should have done to his own in destroying them and leaving only Moses to go into the promised land. Problem is, Moses never would have made it in. Nobody would have made it in if those were the rules we were playing by. And Jonah, the, the, the problem for, for all such functional liberals, all such, all such theological legalists doing less than God demands or demanding more of others than God does, is that they're not really above the law like they think they are. That they need God's grace, his mercy and patience and steadfast love as much as any do. That no one deserves it and no one can earn this grace for themselves. And that in making like they're the one exception, as if they have the, the vantage point to stand over God rather than under God, or that they have to, to stand under God's word, they in fact place themselves outside the one thing they need the most. And how deep does our prejudice run? How deep does our bias run to bracket off those we think don't deserve the grace of God? Or our grace either. And yet, how much, how much deeper does grace run itself? That, that God is still speaking to Jonah. That God continues to speak even when Jonah says it's better to die than to live. That, that God continued to speak afterwards and someday spoke in the coming of his son. That's the story we've written into the, to the doctrinal statement of our church. That, that God spoke our world into being and, and spoke again in the sending of his son. That, that God now continues to speak through those like us who put their faith in God's faithful son. And that God will one day speak again when he writes all wrongs. Who is outside of the grace of God? 
Let me leave you with three, three challenges. Submit to God's word. Surrender to God's way. And delight in God's will. First, submit to God's word. Because as people of the book, we ought to allow God's word to rule our frameworks. And we ought to be vitally aware if the relationship is reversed of where that leaves us. That we put ourselves in danger of being outside the one thing we need the most. Or at least cutting off the flow of it. If I'm taking one of the kids on a date, one of our typical stops is Steak and Shake. Especially if it's happy hour, right? Half price shakes, two to five, Monday through Friday, this is a good place to be. But I find myself having to constantly talk my kids out of getting the M&M shake. Why? Because they crush it up just right so that as soon as they go to suck on the straw, a piece of M&M gets wedged in the back end and they can't get to the one thing they want most. That's what it's like when we take our frameworks and place it over God's word. We cut ourselves off from the flow of it. Even if they're good frameworks, without being actively aware that they're going to make me think God's word says something other than God meant, without being actively aware of that, I put myself in danger of not getting what I need or what I ought to want the most. So I'd encourage you, come to the text knowing that it's meant to challenge your framework, not leave you where you start. Those are dangerous who think they know what they don't know. And it was was Socrates who said, one of my favorite quotes of history, it was Socrates who said, "I'm, I'm the wisest man in the city because I'm the only one who knows I'm a fool. Submit yourselves to God's word. Second, surrender to God's way. That God's way is the way of one full of mercy and grace, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that if we know that grace for what it is in our own lives, we're going to extend that grace to those around us. From this allusion to, to Exodus, it's pretty clear that exactly what's expected, that's exactly what's expected of Jonah. This isn't a grace that you're outside of. This is a grace that your entire nation's history is based on. You should have died. You don't get to tell God, I'd rather die. You should have died. And you didn't. And that the grace that Jonah experienced for himself was a grace he ought to have been extending to others. That he would have been extending to others if he knew that grace for himself. It's clear from this allusion to Exodus. It's also clear from the context of Jonah in the Bible within what's called the Book of the Twelve. You know what the Book of the Twelve is? 
This is the scroll, the one scroll that contained the 12 minor prophets. And though not often seen, these 12 minor prophets actually tell a single story. They're in that scroll for a reason, not just because they needed another place to put them somewhere. And this is a little bit of how that story goes up to Jonah. Hosea tells of the extent of God's steadfast love for his people. Joel of the day of the Lord when God would restore his people through the judgment of their enemies. Amos is then about how following God's heart is the heart of following God. And Obadiah, that for those who follow, God would protect God's people from their enemies. And then Jonah. That God's heart, though, don't get this wrong, extends to those enemies as well. That God's love is for God's people, but his people are those who turn back from their evil ways. So he turns back then from the evil he has in store for them. All the way through to Malachi, the story continues that that's coming most in the person of Jesus Christ. So surrender. Surrender to God's way. Which means we ought to be reflecting that steadfast love and grace in our relationships. If you know it, that's how it works. Whether it's your spouse or your kids, your parents, whether it's your neighbors or the guy down the street that that keeps on burning his leaves and all that smoke is coming through your yard and your kids come in and they smell terrible. It's a grace we're meant to experience for ourselves and then extend to others. So submit to God's word, surrender to God's way, and lastly, delight in God's will. That God is a speaking God uh, uh, of such steadfast love that, that sinners like you and I, stubborn as we are, would be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of the Spirit. The extent of his love. I've been listening to a track on repeat in my Jeep. Pressed a button. I don't know how it happened. The track's on repeat. What can you do? But the words may be worth repeating here. It says, What thief can steal my heart's possession? What power can overwhelm my soul? What shame can silence my confession? Lord, your wounds have paid my ransom. What lie can sever what is certain? What storm can wash away my hope? What threat of death can take my freedom? Lord, your wounds have paid my ransom. And what unspeakable mercy has emptied heaven's reserve? And what redeemer so worthy has covered sin with such love? And what unsearchable riches far beyond human words? Lord, your wounds have paid my ransom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask today that you would give us the grace to submit to your word. That you would give us the humility to surrender to your ways. And that we would see so clearly the extent of your steadfast love for us that we would ever delight in your will to save sinners like us. 
and your enemies near and far by the wounds of your son. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.